Hey. My name is Anna. My name is Brian. And today is our sixth episode for Matterwalk Podcast. Today we'll be talking about Web3 with James Zaki. Hi, James. Hello. Hi. Do you want to get some small introduction to yourself and what are you doing? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just an engineer slash developer. been、um, working on a bunch of different things over time, but more recently working in the Web3 space doing、um, Ethereum smart contract development. Cool, cool. So, do you have anything like in your background connected to Web3 and technologies? And how did you first get involved with Web3? Yeah, so it's a funny story, actually. I,、uh, j- just for fun, I was in a community choir, like not that I can sing, but you know, safety in numbers. So, I was、yeah. talking with someone afterwards in the base section who said, Oh, there's this thing called Ethereum. You might be interested in it. And I didn't know what he was talking about. He was trying to explain it. Then I looked it up and I thought, Okay, this is interesting. And then I found a little Workshop near me run by Boki、um, or Boki Pooba as, he, as he's known as. And、uh, yeah, every week he would run a workshop and I just fell deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. And、uh, yeah, that's how I first got into it, just through some random connection to choir. That's cool. I love the story. Are you doing anything in particular? Can you tell about the projects you're doing right now? I think I, I saw that you're working with the Ethereum Foundation and you have events. Yeah, so a couple of things there. Yeah, I'm working with the Ethereum Foundation within the PSC team, which is the Privacy and Scaling Explorations team. And inside that group, there's a bunch of projects that are, you know, privacy and scaling related. Most of them are privacy based, but our one is a scaling project. So yeah, I'm leading a team there with what we're calling BLS Wallet. Outside of that, I do workshops at the local、um, co working space, DLT Hub. And that's, yeah, just a nice way to sort of give back in the same way that I learned. Because,、uh, you know, in Sydney, Where I'm originally from, these workshops I just you know, really got a lot out of and, and at the end was able to help run some of them and pick some topics myself. But now that I'm here, I, I couldn't quite find anything like that. There wasn't the same sort of technical workshops, a lot more networking, a lot more you know, drinks at bars to chat, but nothing about, hey, let's learn together, let's build together in, in that sort of capacity in, in a room. So yeah, I just started them end of last year or October, I think it was last year. And now this week will be our, I think, 15th workshop. What do you think? We have, like, as a web free society, the damage of the last year, October and everything with FTX、mm. and everything. What do you think? Yeah, so based on the events last year, it was,、um, yeah, quite damaging for the industry. I think you have a lot of people who were maybe dabbling in the space and thinking, what is web three? What is blockchain? What is crypto? And they were like putting their money into this, what would have been for them an experiment. And for others, potentially more like a bit of savings. Not that it's the wisest thing to do to save, you know, attempt to save in a sort of highly volatile field. But if they had some sense of what they were doing and thought it might be a good opportunity and to have that money,、um, you know, kind of lost to them, at least for some period of time, if, if returns ever happen. Yeah, it, it's just damaging to those people who are perhaps just entering into the space. For those who maybe knew the terrain, then, then sure, maybe they could have thought at any moment, even if it's a big, Exchange when you have such centralized power, yeah, maybe there's a chance that it goes down. So we should be hedging and trying to use different exchanges or have more self sovereign wallets. It, it's, you know, a few lessons to be learned then, no doubt. But it's, yeah, as, a, as, a, as an industry, it's definitely、um, tarnished uh, you know, uh, people's perception of it. I mean, you can trace that back to the first sort of ICO boom at the end of 2017. There were people who saw this as an opportunity to put ICO. 
you know, to ICO anything, to put blockchain in their company name, like Lipton Holdings did. They, they, you know, have a beverage company and they put blockchain in their name and then people speculated and threw money at, at their shares. Other companies, you know, did ICOs off, off the back of nothing or, or off the back of very little, but they attempted to promise a lot, but really never completed. So a lot of money went into these false projects. And, and that was probably fueled by greed, people thinking they're in early, other people pumping the markets such that they could then dump on the masses that follow. So that wasn't really good. Regulation stepped in, I guess, relatively quickly, considering it had just kicked off, to then penalize some of the people, which was good. And that stopped that pretty quick. Once there's you know a bit of a, a scam that happens and people spot it, people get punished, then, then that scam stops. But unfortunately, those people are still there. The people who you know play this game of sort of hoarding wealth or, or at least gambling to, to get more on at the expense of others, that's that's not a great game to play, but those people are, that that's the game they play. The NFT boom was another one which, you know, had some genuine popularity, like you had artists coming into the space wanting to have more ownership of, of their, um, or maybe better control of how they sold their art and, and the commissions they could make. But then also there were other projects that were just more speculative and, and we've you know, the, the PFPs uh, were that sort of procedurally generated, not too creative, but again, trying to to build uh, more hype around something that perhaps was warranted. But, you know, that's all subjective. Maybe, maybe I'm just not cool <laughs> and all the PFPs are, are the greatest thing. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's the case. So, something's not right there. <laughs> but yeah, those those people are still there. And if we're to go now and look at, I'm not, not saying CBDCs are the same, but if anything, they're quite different. Like we have a blockchain like, you know, even Bitcoin and Ethereum that are around peer-to-peer currency that are decentralized. And yet something like a CBDC is, I believe, far from that because of the regulation involved. It's heavily controlled by the government rather than being a global system. So I think that's a bit problematic mm-hmm. that they are maybe attempting to bring things from uh, w- what is blockchain and what is sort of good values behind it, but then trying to you know, almost trying to update the system they have to bring in some of the blockchain elements, but not not the good ones. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm still skeptical of that. I don't I don't think it will um, necessarily end well one way or the other. If it succeeds, it won't be great. If it fails, you know, people within government might not be happy. But it's yeah, it's it's an interesting time and and perhaps a dangerous time if if we go too blindly down something that controls everyone's wealth. Do you think that something like ICOs, for example, do you think something like that would ever go away or you think that's still common common way now to to raise money for certain projects because yeah like you said it's yeah um uh, it's one way to you know get money quickly for a project but it's not necessarily you know a great way to you know demonstrate the, yeah. the value of a project or anything because yeah yeah i think you know these gambles are sort of based on likelihood of success and that's that's what investors do right they uh, yeah the investors would put money behind a project, they're taking a risk, but their way of do, doing due diligence is not only checking that what the person's saying is true and correct, but also assessing if they feel that the likelihood of that person to lead this and, and to roll with it and continue and persevere is there. And they that will give them the metric to say, you know, is this a viable investment? You know, is it something worth taking a chance on? Or is this just a gambler who's who's just trying to overpromise it and will likely under under deliver? So I think that's where, you know, the due diligence of regular people isn't as high because everyone is just, maybe they're only staking a lot less. So it's not really worth their while to do a full due diligence for such a small investment. So people are just, you know, gambling and putting a little bit on everything or, or hedging 
greatly. But, you know, is that the best thing for, for, for the, you know, system as a whole? I'm not sure. I think we'll, there may be some gravitation towards almost like the crowdfunding of due diligence. I think that will help clean this up a lot. Where if you've got people that are just good at doing due diligence, good at picking holes at things, good at seeing from past experience, if someone's got a track record that is good or, or not, and to say, look, what is the likelihood of this not being another scam from someone who scammed 10 times? You know, if someone has done that little bit of research and puts the signal there and that is trusted and maybe even crowdsourced so it's not corruptible, then, or less likely to be corrupted, then that would be great. That, that would be helpful, I think. And then you could get more, you know, better and more tuned crowdfunding. But yeah, there's still the, obviously the, the legalities of if it's crowdfunding from a kind of like a possible campaign or a, um, a Kickstarter campaign where it's just money in for a piece of a, a product, I should say, versus, you know, a security type investment where it's money going into have a piece of the company to get paid in dividends because that obviously comes with more strict regulation. And maybe we'll see a blurring of the two, something where we can crowdfund in a less, with well, or, or some, some easier regulation around crowdfunding of companies. And I think there's, in the blockchain space, there is a company Fairmint that is doing something like that with American securities, which I find quite interesting. You think that's kind of why, for example, a lot of regular people, they can't, uh, you know, they're per perhaps not able to make that kind of decisions themselves, but they rely a lot on others. And maybe that's what gave rise to this kind of crypto influencer culture. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, really good point. Uh, I mean, I think Logan Paul is a recent example of an influencer who perhaps was trying to do well, but perhaps also was a bit greedy. It was really good that CoffeeZilla went in and, and he was the one who I would say is the, the, almost the trusted person because mm -hmm. you could see all of his working out. He's not like sort of saying something to everyone and then doing something else behind the scenes, which was, I think, was revealed a little bit with Logan Paul with the, the yeah. internal conversations they had with the eggs project, whatever that was. But with uh, CoffeeZilla, he just shows everything. He says, I spoke with these people. This is what they wanted to say. And, um, you know, these things were off the record or not. Or, you know, if he's got, he, he, he preserves people's privacy and, and their requirements, but still is attempting to get as much in the open as possible. And uh, yeah, I think people should you know, perhaps, I mean, he's actually got a Patreon. I, I recently subscribed to, to CoffeeZilla's Patreon because mm. I appreciate the work he's doing. And he sort of explains it as wanting to do more of the quality work than just the YouTube clickbaity work. And that's almost the symptom he's trying to address. So I, I find that quite, quite self-referential in a sense that he's trying to win himself off the YouTube style revenue model, which is about hype and about, you know, getting the, the eyeballs in there no matter what versus the quality work, which requires a lot more behind the scenes research and investigation to actually then create perhaps on the surface looks like a boring thing, but really even even that he presents well, but but yeah, not not to be overselling coffee seller, but yeah, I think people who do due diligence should be valued, and and I think it's something you know the Patreon model is good for that, and perhaps he'll go to crypto sometime and do that kind of a model, but um, yeah, I think it's important we um, yeah sort of value and elevate those people. Yeah, totally. I think especially in a field where there's a lot more interest in it that and everyone doesn't have perhaps you know enough experience or perhaps the right the right kind of education because it's. It's yeah, it's still up. It's still fairly new. Not everyone will have the sort of um, uh, battle scars or anything they can yeah. make and share, uh, so people can make. And, and the power of group, yeah, and the power of greed is strong. Like I think oh, yeah. certain people are, have more addictive personalities than others, and, and I've seen this with someone who was, I would say, relatively um, popular. Not so much high profile, but popular because of his YouTube channel. 
and also turned foul of, of over gambling other people's money. So I won't name names, but it was someone in Australia who had a big YouTube channel, was sort of critical of other projects, but was always wanting a cut until, you know, once he got a cut, then he could speak highly of other projects. But it, it was, I wonder if, yeah, if, if I maybe point Coffeezilla to him and see what kind of a number he'll do and see what he could dig up. But, but I think that person really came out with, you know, other people, sorry, came out with correspondences of that person asking them to borrow some Bitcoin, a number of Bitcoin from them to say, oh, I need to borrow this just to pay off some debts. And then he gambled that as well. So it's, I think some people have certain personalities that no matter what, they will be taking these risks. And when the market moves up, no, it's not quite no matter what risk you take, you'll win. But, you know, there's a higher chance of winning because the whole floor is going upwards. But when that comes crashing down, you can't really gamble your way out of that. Like any way you move is is going back down. So, yeah, I'm not a trader, so I can't really speak much for that. But I definitely see the addictive personalities, um, you know, taking more risks and gambling. Yeah. And, and and this is where this, yeah, psychology sort of comes in, I guess. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, a lot of it is kind of like gambling because you are putting your money into, you know, something that's very volatile. It's not very stable. Uh, you know, the value base is not very stable and it's very, very much influenced by a lot of current events and, you know, human emotion and everything. Maybe changing topic a little bit, let's move into more of the technology of blockchain and everything. And since, James, you're someone who works with the Ethereum Foundation, maybe you can you know, tell us a bit more about the technical side. I think especially one of the big developments last year in the Ethereum blockchain was the, the move over to proof of stake. Can you I know, share what your thoughts are yeah. on the move in? Yeah, yeah. So so just to caveat, yeah, within the privacy and scaling exploration group, we're somewhat separate from the research group, which works on the protocol. So it's the core research team that is focusing on that. So so my views is somewhat, you know, there's and like somewhat external to that group, but also I feel that anyone outside of the Ethereum Foundation probably sees the same, if not like if they're looking into it, they're probably seeing more than me if, if they're looking into it in more detail because everything's sort of open source. All the conversations are public. There's weekly or monthly calls at least for the different groups. So yeah, there's there's a lot of that outwards facing stuff, which I'm probably not keeping up with all of it. <laughs> but I did look at, I did do a write up of the beacon chain um, a couple of years ago, almost two and a bit years ago now. I wonder if it's coming on three years <laughs> when the beacon chain was written about or started to be written. And I tried to summarize the, the specification to see what was happening and try to really reduce it enough that it could be understood. So I've, I've got an article there. Um, I can link it to you. It's, it's probably very dated because the protocol changed. The specifications changed over time. But that was uh, when they first started with the concept of what will the beacon chain be. And the beacon chain is the, uh, I guess, the consensus layer, whereas the, the EVM is the execution layer. And it's it was the creation of a different consensus mechanism that was the beacon chain. What we saw end of last year was the merge was when we said, okay, let's take this consensus consensus chain that's been running for the last year and a or two years almost and have that become the consensus mechanism of what was currently running, which was the EVM, which had the proof of work consensus mechanism. So it was a matter of doing that. Yeah, very quick swap. <laughs> it was just, you know, one block and then it happened and then nothing changed. There, there, were, there were very subtle changes, I believe, in terms of um, block time. So what was averaging 15 seconds was now 12 point something seconds. So there was a subtle difference there in terms of the blocks being processed, which meant you could, over time, you're processing slightly more blocks. 
sorry, slightly more transactions because you've got more blocks going through in the, yeah, you know, one block per 15 seconds and now you've got one block per 12 or 13 seconds. So that was a subtle difference. And, but the most significant, obviously, being the energy savings, as you said, was 99 point something, probably percent. And I've had that in some slides as well where I'm just trying to say, look, this is what's coming, this is what's happening. And it's, yeah, pretty good. There's more interesting things coming if you want to go there. But I think yeah. that's more around the gas savings of roll-ups because roll-ups are really where you do get the speed advantages or and, and cost savings. And the the interesting EIP that's coming is EIP 4844, which is uh, dank sharding or, or proto-dank shardings first and then towards dank sharding. And that's, I think, very soon now because that was sort of hoping to have happened last or could have potentially been started last year, but you know, the merge was the priority there. And now I think it's called it the scourge. If you look at Vitalik's roadmap, um, there was a section, I think they all rhyme with urge. <laughs> so was, yeah, there was the merge and then there's been the purge and the scourge, I think was a new addition. But yeah, somewhere along the line, there's the um, the blobs, are basically L2 data being written in a special way to L1, such that it doesn't cost as much. And the cost reduction there is going to be quite significant. I think if I remember from Dunkrad, it was 98% reduction in cost but yeah it's, it's worth looking up i'm again not not working within the uh, research team so i don't know the numbers precisely but it's it's a very large reduction in cost okay that sounds like another exciting development for for the chain absolutely yeah even like last year on some of the conferences people kept asking even after this reduction for the energy consumption they kept asking about the environmental effect and i think we tried to find some data about that Probably it was on Ethereum.org. No one knows, not a lot of people think that YouTube paid as twice as more energy, like annually, compared to the Ethereum, even like proof of work. So, and proof of stake to basically just 0.01. Yeah. <laughs> do you have any problems explaining it to the people? Or do, do people come to you and just like, oh, what, what are you actually doing? It's actually damaging the environment. but. People are not thinking yeah. about YouTube or gold mining and actually the same amount of energy. Takes. No, that's that's a good point. And, and I, I do remember that graph. That's actually the one I put in my slides and I, and I referenced where, where we got it from, which was ethereum.org. And it did show that you have YouTube being one of them. And maybe it was Google search or maybe it was something else. And I think it's a value thing that people can't see themselves without YouTube. But if you're not in Ethereum, you say, well, hang on, why are you consuming more of this when I'm not involved? Perhaps like we are. And, you know, it's a fair point to say that a small percentage of people were using it this way. But also in terms of consumption, if demand increased and stayed on just L1, so if things didn't improve like they are, then yes, it could be a problem in the future that that could grow. But then, it'll, you know, I think it'll be sort of self-regulating. If, if it remains slow and expensive, people wouldn't really use it. So yeah, these L2s are required to, to make it more viable. But yeah, switching the consensus mechanism to make it that much cheaper then brings it back down to say, okay, this is now a non-issue. But it's a lot better for people to report about issues than non-issues, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, it's a, it's the way that um, people say that vaccines are a victim of their own success. Like, when a vaccine has worked, no one's getting sick, so there's nothing to talk about. So people forget, oh, that's right, we all took, or our parents all took these certain vaccines, and now no one, you know, less people have polio and the measles. But now that we, people forget that, they're like, oh, actually, yeah, let, let's go without vaccines. And then they get the measles outbreaks in these communities. So it's, yeah, I, th I think it's one of those things that, that when things going well, you know, there's not much to say except, yep, now we're not impacting the environment. It's like, well, yeah. But before yeah. it was easier to say, oh, look at the damage and point your finger. Yeah. 
you know, no news is good news, that's all I'd say. Yeah. Are there any other upcoming changes in the Ethereum you're looking forward to, probably like this year or next year? Yeah, so the, the project I'm on, yeah, the, the BLS wallet is basically to get some compression on layer two transactions by bundling them together. And the yeah logic we want to use there is, uh, yeah, sort of the idea is to save then on Elmon gas costs by reducing that footprint. So that's just one of the projects within the PSE. So uh, yeah, that's that's what I've been working on. We're going to look to, like now that there's this other standard that came out around smart contract wallets, because BLS wallet project is a smart contract wallet, we're looking towards 4337, which began at some point last, uh, I think last year or so. And we'll be, um, yeah, but basically making our uh, wallet compatible with 4337 or, or perhaps using a version that is compatible and adding our components to that. So, you know, as always, the, the specs are moving, things are moving, and we're trying to keep up with that. So that's what's sort of on our plate. Sorry, back to the, the whole proof of stake thing again. Was there any concerns around, say, the security of the chain after moving to a proof of stake? And how has sort of Ethereum addressed that? Yeah. Inherently, proof of stake is you know slightly more insecure than proof of work. You know, some might argue. Uh, and yeah, so how? how mm. did yeah, I haven't. Uh, I haven't heard too much of that angle. I'm not too sure of how it can be less secure. The the angle that I think is worth comparing is sort of the reward mechanism for individuals. Like you know, before when you have proof of work, the rewards are somewhat disproportionate. So if you had a lot of money and could get really advanced mining rigs and and be in a, you know produce like establish a factory in a, in a country with low electricity and a low electricity usage, like so maybe you're in a colder country and it's just cooler and you don't need as active cooling, then you'll be getting more blocks and those blocks are what pays the reward. Whereas if you're a miner at home on, on an average computer and you're paying, you know, Western or European prices for energy, especially now, but um, you're not going to do so well. Like you're, you're proportionally going to spend more than what you get back compared to the bigger player who spends a lot more and actually gets a lot more back proportionally. The difference now with proof of stake is that if, if I put in 32 ETH and someone else puts in 320 ETH, we both proportionally get the same reward. So percent, like we get the same proportion of the reward. So if it's 5% returns, I'm not sure what the calculation is, but there's some percentage, you know, returns you get. I'll get that and they'll get that same percentage return. So you get what you put in and that, and that's, you know, from my point of view, that sounds mm-hmm. fairer. And this is something that was explained well on a bankless podcast, I think last year, okay. but, um, yeah. I, yeah, I guess the the security angle here was, you know, if if you had more influence on the blocks, wouldn't that mean that you know it becomes a little bit more centralized, something like that? Yeah, and I guess the question is, how can that happen? Because can I remember, you know, this was the beginning of the beacon chain when I had the beginning of the specification of the beacon chain was when I looked into it. So my memory of that is a bit bit hazy, but there was um, interesting algorithms of what's considered. To, to create finality. So you have, I forget the term of the other one, but there's some preliminary kind of settlement of a block. And then you have, if you get two settled blocks, that becomes final. The, the second block um, reaches finality. Whether that's the ghost or something else, again, the algorithms are beside me. You'd be better asking someone from the research team. Um, but with that, I believe the cost of reverting a, a block that's reached finality is very expensive like it's it's cost you know so much given um you know maybe it was some proportion of what was staked you'd have to have that much money to to attempt this attack so it's really like you know 
highly, highly, highly improbable for someone would be able to have that much money to then throw against the system and effectively devalue the system. And I think this is always the thing that if someone tries to break a blockchain system that they're holding coins in, they devalue it. So it's, you know, I can't see that happening because it doesn't make sense as an attack to attempt to buy so much of this to then try to revert something and then actually have something that maybe doesn't have the same cost that you're trying to attack anyway. So yeah, I don't think there's much um, uh, a basis of it being less secure. But but again, I'm not <laughs> I'm not a researcher and I haven't looked specifically at one algorithm versus the other. No, I'd like to understand if if there is some thoughts on that. If there's any rationale behind it, I'd love to understand it. I think you've explained it really well. It's good to hear from your side, like what, what your thoughts are on the concerns. Because, yeah, I've only heard it's a bit, but I haven't really thought about it very much. So yeah, we we need some we need to crowdfund someone's due diligence to explain this better to us. What, what are the opposing <laughs> viewpoints, and why do people say, you know, because because I feel it's it is easier for people to throw an aspersion that's maybe um you know without without the backup. But definitely, it's you know. Concerns should be looked at, but then at that point we say, let's look at the concern or find someone who can and then bring that as the point. And uh, that, sorry, that, that didn't mean to sound like an attack on you. It's just in general, I know the sound bites that are more mm-hmm. um, poignant are the other negative ones. Like when people say proof of stake is worse for reasons A or you know B or C, what, like it would be better if the conversation maybe started with that. But then if they could put, this is why they think it's less safe or this is why, but, but often you'll get. Yeah, people would just, uh, dare I say, Bitcoin maxis maybe saying, oh, now Ethereum's not safe because Bitcoin's now the only safe one with proof of work. Like, okay, citation needed. <laughs> Do you have any hopes or predictions for the Webley field for the next year or like this year, next year? Yeah, good question. I think layer twos and the cost reductions that are coming are going to give an explosion of applications that we have not seen before. The focus on UX has always been and I mentioned this in, in other in other posts and stuff, that the UX is an issue. And each year it's been spoken about to say we need to improve the UX. But I think even if people did improve the UX a little bit, the demand for applications hasn't been as strong in certain areas. It's, um, you know, it's been possible to have like NFT sales or have, you know, ICOs before that. But with the next big boom... I think won't come from one particular application, but from a lot of startup experimentation in a more viable way. So with the low cost and high speeds, you then can have uh, more um, ability to have a viable business built using blockchain technology. And I've seen this focus as well reflected in businesses that are um, focusing on, I guess, startup stacks or maybe middleware, or sorry, I should say Web3 stacks or middleware for easier interfaces with blockchain or, or with a smart contract um, yeah, application shuffles play yeah exactly and and i think that's great i think that's the signal that is really saying there will be an explosion of small businesses and small experiments and you know maybe one of them will, will be another boom but i think actually there'll be many many little booms and some big booms so and i say booms from the point of view of attention and utility there'll be a lot of experimentation and some will, will hit you know, a core to say, oh, yes, finally, we have this ability, like things that persist beyond businesses, we can now actually value this or, yeah, just to, just to, I don't want to get too speculative into ideas, but yeah, there's, I think a lot of experimentation to be had. Yeah, I think it will be cool to invite you later on and just, just to see how it turned out. But yeah, I think we need to start wrapping up because sadly, our time is running out. Thanks so much for coming today. Cheers. Bye.